everybody, and welcome once again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am joined on the mic by my co-host and co-producer, Calvin Pollock. Hey, how's it going, Alex? Good, Calvin. And we are thrilled to be joined for the first time on the mic by new co-producer, new uh, co-host, Mike Laudenbach. Mike, how you doing? How's it going, guys? I'm good. Very great to have you here. Uh, fellow uh, uh, former colleague of ours, I guess current colleague, I guess we could say, uh, also a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon. Thrilled to have you on the team and thrilled for you to join us today because we have an extra special treat here on Reverb. Ever since this particular issue came into our sights, we have been uh, really jonesing to do an episode on this. We are, of course, resurrecting our Rejoinder series uh, for a rejoinder on a topic that we've covered in some amount of detail before. We did a rejoinder on uh, campus free speech in a different episode, uh, but today... I want to help address a question, a, a discourse, if you will, mm. uh, that's been going around uh, online academics and different celebrity academics in different media spheres. So the question that I want to open it up to my co-contributors here is, guys, is, is higher ed is higher ed broken? Not in the ways that some people think. It's broken in a lot of ways. <laughs> in in what ways might we say that higher ed is broken? I mean, I would say it's uh, it's broken in the way that, uh, you know, God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. Like in that sense, like in that, in that higher ed is a broken road that leads us all to um, better places, better horizons. And, and I'm really thankful for that. And shout out to uh, Rascal Flats, who will be making wow. an appearance later on the show. <laughs> Basically That's captures fair. it. It really does. It really, we, yeah. What else do you need to say other than that, uh, Mike? What do you mean when you say higher ed is broken, but not in the way that some people think it is? Uh, how do I put it in in the words that will sound the most sarcastic? Since I don't mean that, <laughs> um, but they're stifling our freedoms, Alex. Mm. They're not letting us talk about things. Which things, you might ask? Uh, the bigoted ones. Yeah. Shh, shh, we can't talk about them. Um, so we, <laughs> yes, we're dealing once again with, uh, with, you know, the fundamental, uh, disjuncture between higher education's, you know, what its ostensible goals should be, right? The, uh, you know, in the eyes of some the pursuit of truth, veritas as, uh, as Harvard's motto goes. And of course, Harvard has always, uh, held itself to that high standard. Uh, we should all know. Um, <laughs> and all of its, all of its graduates yes uh hashtag sarcasm and sarcasm um so we're gonna talk a little bit today about sarcasm. if you haven't already guessed we're talking about the university of austin folks so for those of us that don't know what the university of austin is uh it is not it is not ut austin now for a while that's what i thought we were talking about and i said no there's some great scholars there great colleagues why is everyone dunking on UT Austin. What's going <laughs> it on? It is not UT Austin. I, I, turned out I was wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, but but you know that mistake that you made uh, is probably an intentional one because yeah, again probably. this is this is a uh, a uh, not real university. Uh, it should be mentioned it is not accredited as of right now. It is a it is a concept uh, called the University of Austin, not a real university uh, that is has been started by a series of uh, people who might call themselves heterodox thinkers, right? People whose uh, opinions stray from uh, the 
conformist normal uh, normal views of those in academia, uh, or at least so they claim. Um, so and so it's not a real university in the same way that like the School of Americas was was not a real school. <laughs> They are they are a university to the extent that Trump University was a real university. I guess that's maybe more fair to say. I mean, couldn't you actually get a degree from Trump U though? I mean, I actually, yeah, sell. that's a that's a good point. So Trump University already has uh, better accreditation and yeah. <laughs> more bona bona fides than uh, than uh, than the University of Austin currently does. Right. So, but yeah, so it's it's. This is kind of basically a, a, a proof of concept. It's more of a PowerPoint presentation than a, than a real university at this point. Yeah, more or less, we can think of this as like a, you know, as a, a, a an investment pitch meeting. <laughs> basically, the script from an investment pitch is uh, is essentially what what we're dealing with here. So for those of you who aren't on Twitter, first of all, good for you. Second of all, uh, it's been going around uh, pretty virally the last couple of weeks that uh, a series of people that are known for just getting mercilessly dunked on on Twitter uh, are circulating this. Uh, an op-ed or a series of op-eds that have been used to announce the creation of this new university. Uh, so to give us a sense of what that is, you know, potentially going to look like, but let's be honest, probably not. Um, I have here a uh, an article published by Pano Canalos, uh, uh, who is, oh my goodness, I forgot what his title is. Hang on one second. Or his former one, I guess. Um, oh yes, this is, let me see here. I'm going to edit this out and post. No, no, keep all of this in. (laughs) Yeah. Struggling to find this person's credentials uh, kind of illustrates something about it. It really, it really does. Doesn't it? Yeah. Hold on. Let me see here. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. That's what I thought we were talking about. Trump, Trump university, Austin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. Okay, so I'm sorry. Uh, Pano Canalos is the former president of St. John's College, uh, private university there, now the current president of the University of Austin. Uh, so basically, this was a – so, I mean, first and foremost, I think we need to talk about where this article was published. This is on the substack of one Barry Weiss. Uh, what do you all know about, about uh, our friend Barry Weiss? So, I mean, Barry Weiss was, uh, a, as an undergraduate, I believe at Columbia, I could have that wrong, but I believe at Columbia, she was notorious for trying to get leftist professors fired, including especially uh, Muslim professors who were um, teaching courses about U.S. empire and about Israel-Palestine and things that offended her political views. So, so Barry... Uh, successfully led some campaigns, I believe, to to get people stripped of tenure um, and stuff like that. So she's notorious for that. And now she has kind of reinvented herself as a free speech martyr, despite that checkered past of actually harming academic freedom at the institutions she was associated with. I believe she just has a bachelor's in like journalism or something. She worked at the New York Times for a while and then tried like tried to get fired throughout her time at the New York Times. Yes. Did not succeed, failed to get herself <laughs> fired, and then quit and started a substack. Kind of similar to what Glenn Greenwald did at the intercept. 
Yes, absolutely. It's a good way to build your brand nowadays. Yeah, as it turns out, uh, pretending to be silenced uh, by quitting your job, uh, citing uh, incivility from coworkers or from other people, is, as it turns out, a great way to uh, make your voice even more heard than ever and uh, to probably make more money uh, off of what you were doing. So, um, yeah, that gives... I'm I'm really glad that we contextualized Barry Weiss uh, in that way. Uh, In addition to, I was waiting for somebody to make the joke. Uh, it's my least favorite beer from uh, Line and Kugel's Brewing Company out of uh, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Barry Weiss, folks. Uh, the Honey Weiss, very Honey Weiss, very good. Barry Weiss, very bad. That's um, surprising to me, Alex, because you like fruity beers. I, d- I mean, s- sort of. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm I am a I am a German beer drinker at heart. So if it doesn't follow the Bavarian purity laws, oh no, wait, I can't say that. I might get canceled for it. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm leaving. You get more listeners. That That's way. a good point. Here. Yeah, I got I got to self cancel from Reverb now. Um, yes. So <laughs> silenced. That's right. Uh, so <laughs> silence for truth. Um, so let's uh, let's dig into this op-ed from Pano Canalos. We can't wait for universities to fix themselves, so we're starting a new one. Wait, can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise I won't cut off like every sentence on no, this please. one because I, I know that can be a problem. But I got to point out the grammatical ambiguity in this title. <laughs> the first sentence, the very first sentence, he commits a classic uh, uh, error of grammar where you truly could mean multiple things. We can't wait for universities to fix themselves. <laughs> I did not notice that on the first read. We can't wait for universities to fix themselves. <laughs> That's amazing. So we're here to help. So we're here to, <laughs> we're here to help by starting a new one uh, by Pano Canalos. Uh, all right. <clears throat> here we go. So much is broken in America feel like there should be like some dramatic like piano music playing in the background so much is broken in america but higher education might be the most fractured institution of all there is a gaping chasm between the promise and the reality of higher education yale's motto is lux et veritas light and truth harvard proclaims veritas young men and women of stanford are told die luft der freiheit wet the wind of freedom blows. These are James soaring O'Keefe. words. James O'Keefe <laughs> proclaims Project Veritas. <laughs> <laughs> Veritas is everywhere if you're just willing to look for it. Uh, these are soaring words. But in these top schools and in so many others, can we actually claim that the pursuit of truth, once the central purpose of a university, remains the highest virtue? Do we honestly believe that the crucial means to that end, freedom of inquiry and civil discourse, prevail when illiberalism has become a pervasive feature of campus life? I don't know. What do you think, guys? Can we? Can we deliver on that promise when we're just all illiberal and uncivil on our campuses? Yeah, no work gets done on our campuses because <laughs> no one's allowed to say anything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, don't you wish that was true, Mike? Wouldn't that make your life a lot freaking easier if there was no There'd be nothing work, to do. If you were not yeah. pursuing truth, it would be mm. so sweet Without- to just not have to pursue truth by, like, reading and doing research and writing <laughs> and grading papers right. all day long mm-hmm. for, for, for less and less money. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, the truth, just like freedom, the truth ain't free. Uh, but uh, but we, we must continue. The numbers tell the story as well as any anecdote you've read in the headlines or heard within your own circles. Perhaps your crank uncle at Thanksgiving. Oh, wait, no, I'm, I didn't say that. Uh, near, <laughs> nearly a quarter of American academics in the social sciences or humanities endorse ousting a colleague for having a wrong opinion about hot button issues such as immigration or gender differences. I'll read that. Is again. there a Nearly. link there? D- does that one have a source? It does indeed. Yes, it can follow up that source. That comes from uh, a CSPI uh, report on academic freedom in crisis, punishment, political discrimination, and self censorship, uh, by Eric Kaufman from the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, um, which I think <laughs> is probably a very, a very real and very illustrious uh, academic think tank. <laughs> um, the study of ideology, the center for the study of ideology. I think that's what this podcast should be called. Uh, yeah, honestly, we should just start calling ourselves a, like a think tank or an institute or something. Because, like, apparently, you can ju- you can just say that and you become that. Say that about university too. That's true. <laughs> Reverb you. That's yeah, honestly, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. If Prager you can do it, then Reverb you should have no problem. Go Verbies. Um, yeah, <laughs> go Verbies. <laughs> Our mascot is just is just a Furby that hasn't had its battery changed since the late nineties. It can only say its name like Verby. Um, anyway, that was too much. Um, Those things are really haunted. That's actually a, a different podcast. We'll probably cover the haunting of yes, Furby. hauntology well, I mean, in Furby discourse. We know that agency is is a haunting rhetorical agency. So it's, it kind of kind of fits with our our sort of theoretical frameworks, our Josh Gunn style. Absolutely. Um, who says there wasn't Veritas in academia? That's right. Yeah, we're, we're creating Veritas right here, folks. Over a third of conservative academics and PhD students say that they have been threatened with disciplinary action for their views. Four out of five American PhD students are willing to discriminate against right-leaning scholars, according to a report by the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, which I just mentioned. We don't have time to, to, to chase these sources down, unfortunately, <laughs> but like... This is such problematic sourcing because, like, all of this is describing polls. This is like opinion data or, like, data on the views of academics. And, like, within each claim, there are so many contestable terms, like terms with extremely fuzzy definitions. So, Mm -hmm. for example, four out of five PhD students are comfortable with discriminating against uh, colleagues with different political views? Or did, did, did it specifically say conservative it's, political it's views? Said, it said against right-leaning scholars. Right-leaning. So, yes. you know, that could mean not wanting to cite people in research. I mean, discriminate. Yes. Uh, uh, like, obviously, we discriminate all the time when we write and we do academic work, but it's like intellectual discrimination. It's discriminating between good and bad research right Right. um but we're we're encouraged to believe that this means discriminating for you know uh, employment or or other kinds of like you know guaranteed rights Um, yeah and and i just guarantee if you if you follow that that chain of sourcing down this is not as clear as it's being made out to be 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the report itself, uh, draws a, uh, a, a distinction between hard authoritarianism, which includes no platforming and firing. Uh, they have an iceberg model of discrimination that looks very interesting. Uh, left-wing authoritarianism, uh, particularly is focused on, uh, in early in the report. And then of course, uh, soft authoritarianism, which is, uh, where they conduct an ideological evolution of academia, uh, talk about the chilling effects and self-censorship, particularly for conservatives in academia. So just to give you uh, a sense, just reading through the table of contents, it's pretty clear uh, what kind of chilling of free speech they are describing here. Because, I mean, I want to, I, I think we want to make clear that, like, it's not that chilling of free speech doesn't happen on college campuses. I mean, I think it does. The real question that we should be asking here is, whose ideas are being chilled and through what mechanisms, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be an important point to come back to, whether or not this is actual administrative action uh, against faculty and students who express certain beliefs uh, and face repercussions for it, or if it is just people openly disagreeing with other people's beliefs, uh, I think is going to be very important uh, to study here. Uh, the soft, the soft authoritarianism of people disagreeing with what I think, uh, is, is I right. think what we're going to get some more of here. The soft authoritarianism uh, of people hating me. Go yes. Ahead, yes. I also want to point out that in one of these, uh, reports, figure one, the, the disinvitation data, yes. it's a 3d line chart for no reason. <laughs> I'm like, looking at on. that too. It's, <laughs> oh should be, it's a two dimensional graph, but it's 3d. Like that's like the first <laughs> thing that you should. Terrible oh my god, you're right. Design. What is the Come point any, of that? Uh, any 107 students at CMU, any writing about data folks? Come on. Joanna Wolf would be would, would never would be would be so displeased. Um all right, here we go. Let's get into some more statistics folks because these as we all know, the 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 core of Veritas is uh statisticas, uh which is, you know, hard data. The picture among undergraduates is even bleaker. So that was just PhD students, which, you know, <laughs> wouldn't want to be one of those. Um, <laughs> the picture among undergraduates is even bleaker. In Heterodox Academy's 2020 Campus Expression Survey, 62% of sampled college students agreed that the climate on their campuses prevent students from saying things they believe. Nearly 70 students favor reporting professors <clears throat> if the professor says something that students find offensive, according to a Chali Institute for Global Innovation survey. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE, reports at least 491 disinvitation campaigns since 2000. Roughly half were successful. And just to that last data point, I want to point out that, <laughs> once again, if we take this and scale it, uh, so FIRE, uh, which is a, I think, fairly nonpartisan... Uh, yeah, FIRE's, uh, FIRE's pretty good. Yeah, they, about they, reporting... They speak out on, on you know... Shut shutdowns of left wing speech as well. Right. Uh, so Fire reports that 491 disinvitation campaigns have occurred since again the year 2000. So we're talking about the span of 21 years. 491 disinvitation campaigns, roughly half of which were successful. For those of you who don't have a calculator out, that means that at maximum there were an average of 13 successful disinvitations per year, um, which frankly, does not sound quite as impressive when you put it no, in those and, terms. And, and 13 talks, I mean, how many tens of thousands of talks happen per year? Yeah, yeah. It is a, it is a just 
ridiculous minority of uh, disinvitation campaigns that are actually successful uh, when put into proportion. Um, yeah. So again, I just want to, these statistics are always in need of contextualization, uh, but that one in particular I thought was, uh, was particularly ridiculous. Also, like nearly 70% of students favor reporting professors if the professor says something students find offensive. Doesn't seem like a bad thing to me. I don't think so like either. Yeah. In fact, that's a sign that students' free speech is not being chilled. In fact, they are encouraged yes. to speak out when somebody says something awful to them in class. Right. And it, and it, you know, again, like saying something offensive, what do we mean by that? Like yes. this is this is being used to it's being used as a premise in an argument that like truth is not being pursued that uh, free speech and particularly free political speech is not being fostered at these institutions, but like saying something offensive in class encapsulates way more than political speech. I mean, in a lot of cases that could be harassing people in the class, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so what are we talking about here? Like these terms are so contested. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Not that not that we're supposed to question those at all. That's that's the kind mm -hmm. of heterodox belief we need to leave at the door uh, is <laughs> is questioning where our data comes from and how uh, how these terms are defined. It continues on our quads. Faculty are being treated like thought criminals. I want you to, to take that label and see if that really applies to uh, the examples we're about to get. Dorian Abbott, a University of Chicago scientist who has objected to aspects of affirmative action, was recently disinvited from delivering a prominent public lecture on planetary climate at MIT. Peter Bogosian, a philosophy uh, sorry, Peter Bogosian, a philosophy professor at Portland State University, finally quit in September after years of harassment by faculty and administrators. Sorry, there's just something that feels almost a little bit like triumphalist about saying he finally quit in September. <laughs> well, it's I mean, it's like what Barry Weiss did. It's like what yeah. Ken Greenwald did. Like he finally exactly. decided I can make a bigger check by quitting. Um, and pretending I was canceled out of a job. Also, Peter Bogosian is a is a guy we know, right, Alex? Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, Peter Bogosian is uh, one of the three uh, uh, quote-unquote scholars that drafted the uh, grievance studies uh, affair, where they, he and uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose uh, submitted fake journal articles to different humanities journals uh, to where they basically made up observations and data uh, passed them off as real, uh, got them published, and then said, ha-ha, look how silly these journals are for publishing things that we purported were true. Um, so basically— Yeah, and uh, they chose, like, they chose, like, super obscure journals, yes. actually, yep. and, and yep. journals that were super understaffed in terms of their editorial staff. They took advantage yes. of, um, like, basically struggling journals yeah, uh, essentially. To, to, to do this, like, satirical exercise. Right. Um, so these these are far from uh, good faith actors. Absolutely. And I mean, it should also be noted, Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay, uh, you know, for those of you who haven't listened to uh, the Embrace the Void podcast, uh, they're, they're hosted a very good rundown on uh, Peter and James's uh, 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 
cohort <clears throat> mingling with a, a Christian nationalist where they put together one of their first heterodox conferences where they were literally talking about everything from, you know, the grievance studies affair to whether or not uh, George Soros is paying uh, paying different uh, actors to uh, to basically de-Christianize uh, different parts of society. So um, they're really keeping some cool company, those guys, uh, you know, really uh, deserve to be taken seriously on uh, on all fronts. Um, so not only did Peter Bogosian quit uh, Portland State University, so he, again, quit, wasn't fired. Uh, Kathleen Stock, a professor at University of Sussex, just resigned after mobs threatened her over her research on sex and gender, which is uh, a very generous way of saying uh, public comments uh, against the uh, civil rights of transgender people. <laughs> that is a, uh, a very curious way to phrase research on sex and gender. University of Sussex? I mean, where is that in the UK? Yes, yeah. It is a rather okay. prominent university. And I mean, Kathleen okay. Stock resignation was kind of a high profile thing but of course the whole premise of this was that she's resigning from university of sussex to come on staff at the university of austin um so here we have again yeah. another instance of self-cancellation leading to failing failing laterally i guess at least maybe not upwards but certainly not down i don't want to make <clears throat> sweeping generalizations but i think trans exclusionary feminism is in vogue in britain at the moment oh, yeah. indeed For indeed sure. it is um yeah it raises a lot of questions about what is actually a heterodox point of view <laughs> we can mm -hmm. get into that in uh, just a moment here we had thought back to panos here we had thought that such censoriousness since yes yeah censoriousness i did say that right we had the thought that censorium of dr parnassus <laughs> There's a good episode title right there. <laughs> the the sensorium of uh, Professor Pinker or Professor Canelos. <laughs> yes, and we'll spell it C-E-N-S-O-R. Yes, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we had thought such censoriousness was possible only under oppressive regimes in distant lands. Wow, love the exoticism there. Yeah, the casual imperialism there. Yeah, distant yeah. lands. Oppressive we don't, we don't regimes. Have any oppression here. But, That's right. But, when you get a little distant, um, you know, when you really put some some miles on your frequent flyers, <laughs> yes. that's when you start to see oppression. That's right. But it turns out that fear can become endemic in a free society. I wonder what it's like to live in one of those. It can almost become, it can become most acute in the one place, the university, that is supposed to defend, quote, the right to think the unthinkable, discuss the unmentionable, and challenge the unchallengeable, end quote. Anyone who knows any history about the universities in America knows that that's definitely true. <laughs> yes, that has always been the case for all universities across this great land. Ever. Mm -hmm. Yes. The reality is that many universities no longer have an incentive to create an environment where intellectual dissent is protected and fashionable opinions are scrutinized. At our most prestigious schools, the primary incentive is to function as a finishing school for the national and global elite. Amidst the brick and ivy, these students entertain ever more inaccessible theories, while often just blocks away their neighbors figure out how to scratch out a living. So this this is where it gets very dodgy because yeah. like you know, in one respect this is true. Yes. Right? And, and but it's but it's always been true. And it's probably less true now than ever. 
because more people are getting a college education from different kinds of backgrounds uh, than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like they're, they're acting as if that sort of elitism of academia is worse than ever, but it's probably slightly better than ever. Um, and mm-hmm. it's not as if, uh, you know, theory has actually gotten more. I mean, that's another thing that we could track is like, has right. theory gotten more access inaccessible over time? How would you measure that? Right. But, but, but the bottom line is at this point about like the elites and trying to sort of appropriate a class struggle narrative and a class critique of the academy, like that has always been a valid critique of the academy, but it's not as if it's worse than ever. And that what they're describing is like ruling class hegemony. What they're describing is a weird mishmash of anecdotes, some of which are actual accountability measures being taken by students. Right. And I mean, to be fair, they, th- he is describing the most prestigious schools here. So we're talking about the Harvard, your Harvards, your Ivies kind of in general, um, which again, I don't think that that is necessarily an unfounded critique. I mean, as somebody at an Ivy League university, I would have to say it's not totally off base. It doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, I have a lot of, I have most, most of my students take their education very, very seriously though. So I would take umbrage with that uh, to, uh, to an extent. Well, he does even g- the Ivies have have diversified. That's like, right. That's right. I'm not saying they've done enough, and 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 it's often their students who are demanding that they do more. Right? Yes, to that's diversify, precise to bring in students from uh, marginalized backgrounds, especially class marginalized backgrounds. But like again, it's they're acting as if this is that that aspect is getting worse and worse, and it's the same thing that they're calling censoriousness or whatever that's right this paragraph is one of those political rorschach tests where <laughs> it relies on a lot of the assumptions of the readers of barry weiss's Substack. Ooh, yeah very good point mike that is one that could be read a number of different ways but particularly i think it's important to yeah contextualize this with where it's published and who's likely to be reading this Now, it does go on here to say that, you know, the priority at most other institutions is simply to avoid financial collapse. They are in a desperate contest to attract a dwindling number of students who are less and less capable of paying skyrocketing tuition. I think that's fairly, fairly accurate. Over the last three decades, the cost of a degree from a four-year private college has nearly doubled. The cost of a degree from a public university has nearly tripled. The nation's students owe $1.7 trillion in loans. Man, if only there was something that we could do about that. Oh, man, it's, well, you know, probably should just leave that where it lies. Yeah, and that (laughs) definitely doesn't affect uh, freedom of speech or thought, you know, for students, like having crippling debt uh, bearing down on them at all times. That's right. That's right. This is just a a sign of greedy universities and nothing else. Mm. Uh, And to what end? Nearly 40% of those who pursue a college degree do not attain one. We should let that sink in. Higher education fails four in ten of its students, a system that so brazenly extracts so much from so many without delivering on its basic promises is overdue for a reckoning. The warped incentives of higher education, prestige, or survival means that an increasing proportion of tuition dollars are spent on administration rather than instruction. 
Here's an old hobby horse that we've seen from uh, other uh, conservative takedowns of the university before, which is that, boy, we just have too many dang diversity officers. Uh, universities now aim to attract and retain students through client-driven, quote-unquote, student experiences, from trivial entertainment to emotional support to luxury amenities. In fact, many universities are doing extremely well at providing students with everything they need. Everything, that is, except intellectual grit. I particularly like how they nestle um I really like how they nestle emotional support in between <laughs> trivial entertainment and luxury amenities as if that's just something extra. <clears throat> yeah, that's Yeah, right. and like you know, when when the Ivies were just like exclusively white men sons of, you know, business tycoons, they never did anything for entertainment. Uh, uh, they all just like hit the books 100% of the time and, you know, debated and like screamed at each other about ideas. Mm -hmm. They never, uh, uh, you know, played golf or <laughs> cricket or whatever the fuck rich people do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, so now we now we're going to extrapolate uh, out from the you know the individual level though, and start talking about the these. Uh, we're going into that classic uh, trope we all know and love from conservative free speech uh, uh, cranks, which is civilizational decline. Here we go. It's not just that we are failing our students as individuals; we are failing the nation. Our democracy is faltering in significant part because our educational system has become illiberal and is producing citizens and leaders who are incapable and unwilling to participate in the core activity of democratic governance. Universities are the places where society does its thinking, where the habits and mores of our citizens are shaped. If these institutions are not open and pluralistic, if they chill speech and ostracize those with unpopular viewpoints, if they lead scholars to avoid entire topics out of fear, Israel-Palestine, if they prioritize emotional comfort over the often uncomfortable pursuit of truth, who will be left to model the discourse necessary to sustain liberty in a self-governing society? <gasps> At some point, historians, at some future point, historians will study how we arrived at this tragic pass, and perhaps by then, we will have reformed our colleges and universities, restoring them as bastions of open inquiry and civil discourse. Whew. Felt like a roller coaster ride. I mean, is this, it, so much is this an actual causal claim about like the reason our politics suck now is because universities have too much cancel culture. Like it's not, yes, it's not like money in politics or, you know, the fact that nine 11 broke the country's entire brain and, you know, and <laughs> we proceeded to, you know, put all of our collective psychic energy into killing people in the middle East. Like that's not what broke our politics. It's it's the fact that like Richard Spencer can't go speak on campuses. That's right. Okay. Yeah. All boils down cool. to that. Yeah. One of my, yeah, it's it's one of my favorite, like, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a fallacy bro, right? Like I'm not here to to like troll their, you know, their logic here, but I mean, this is one of those fallacies that it's like you take an outcome and then you trace it back to one single cause like this. Right. <laughs> and seeing like, you know, oh, uh the politics of somebody like Donald Trump are the direct result of university students canceling speakers. Like that yeah, is Donald I, Trump is like ninety years old. I mean, 
mean, yeah. he was he was he was formed in the university culture that they claim we've lost. That's exactly right. Um, and he's horrible at debating or or like. <laughs> I mean, actually, I shouldn't say that because he did beat Hillary in, in the debates. That's a good point. Um, that's a good point. <laughs> but but that's not through no fault of his own. Uh, that's because at one point, so, do, don't you realize that Donald Trump was at one point, you know, a blue haired, uh, uh, you know, college student who was, you know, advocating. He was out, you know, holding picket signs all the time, you know, wearing ripped jeans. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. he learned how to cancel uh, <laughs> uh, at um, at. Where did he go? NYU? I don't even remember. UPenn. Some, yeah. Because yeah, he always was... brags about going to the business school yeah. there, but like he went to undergrad there, not the, <laughs> the MBA program. Awesome. Awesome. When he was throwing punk shows in Philly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Undoubtedly, that was what Donald Trump was doing. Oh, my God. All right. Now, the twist. But we are done waiting. We are done waiting for the legacy universities to write themselves. And so we are building anew. I mean that quite literally. As I write this, I'm sitting in my new office, boxes still waiting to be unpacked, in balmy Austin, Texas, where I moved three months ago from my previous post as president of St. John's College in Annapolis. So again, the author is outing himself as another self-cancellation to come and work for this illustrious university. Uh, And saying in particular... What if if the twist here was like... uh, Yes, I'm going to South by this year, South by Southwest <laughs> here in Austin. Uh, can't wait to see some really cool talks and bands. That's right. Um, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, it sounds fun. Sounds like a really good yeah. time, especially when you're hanging out with a murderer's row. Uh, and I don't use that term unintentionally, uh, like he's about to announce here. I am not alone. Our project began with a small gathering of those concerned about the state of higher education. Niall Ferguson, Barry Weiss, uh, Heather Haying, Joe Lonsdale, Arthur Brooks, and I. And we have since been joined by many others, including the brave professors mentioned above, Kathleen Stock, Dorian Abbott, and Peter Bogosian. We count among our numbers university presidents, Robert Zimmer, Larry Summers, John... (laughs) Frequent Epstein co-conspirator Larry well, Summers and, and, and Larry Summers, yeah. What was he like? The Fed chairman or the? Yes, the, he, he was definitely like a like a high economic official. Yes, in I think the Clinton administration, um, deregulation. Like I associate him with like. 90s, 2000s deregulation that caused the financial crisis, basically. Yeah, more or less. So again, heterodox thinker, a mover and a shaker. Yeah, and like guys like Larry (laughs) Summers didn't ruin our politics. Yeah, no, certainly not. Cancel culture. (laughs) That's right. Couldn't have been the divestment from universities for decades. Yeah. Definitely the cancel culture. That's right. That's right. Uh, And leading academics such as Steven Pinker, Deirdre McCloskey, Leon Cass, Jonathan Haidt, Glenn Lowry, Joshua Katz, Vicki Sullivan, Jeffrey Stone, Bill McClay, and Tyler Cowan. We are also joined by journalists, artists, philanthropists, researchers, and public intellectuals, including Lex Fridman, Andrew Sullivan, Rob Henderson, Caitlin Flanagan, David Mamet, Ion Hersey Ali. I'm just doing this in SNL voice now. So, <laughs> so Rab Amari, Stacey Hawk, Jonathan Rausch, and Nadine Strozen. <laughs> and musical guest 311. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. If they should be so lucky. <laughs> Wait, so I yeah, know some of these some of these names we got to spend a little time yeah, on. Yeah, we because, do. So Andrew Andrew Sullivan. Oh man, classic. Uh, so Andrew Sullivan, for people who don't know, was 
very instrumental in popularizing Charles Murray's um, theories of intelligence, which are incredibly racialized slash racist yes. theories of uh, IQ and intelligence as being associated with different racial categories. Um, and so Andrew Sullivan, when he was writing for the New Republic, uh, did a lot of like glowing profiles of Murray's research in the 90s. Um, and then Sullivan went on to be a massive Iraq war hawk and, and just like an all around terrible conservative thinker. Yes. He was um, just on 60 Minutes, uh, I think, defending the bell curve again. Oh, sort of. awesome. Yeah. Really great to have, give him that airtime. Yeah. No, right. and, then, and, then, and then, of course, David Mamet, uh, <laughs> great playwright. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't, that, that kind of threw me for a loop. Yeah, That's that kind one of did a bummer that too. David Mamet's involved. But I, I don't know. Maybe David Mamet has, in recent years, kind of gone off the deep end. I don't know. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm not exactly sure what his what his whole deal was, um, or why he's on there. But yeah, again, Glenn Gary Glenn Greenwald, Glenn Gary Glenn Greenwald, <laughs> and Glenn Gary Glenn Lowry is on here as well. Uh, <laughs> jo- Jonathan Hate uh, or Height, I don't know how to say his name, but uh, famous Hate, for writing okay. Jonathan Hate, uh, famous for writing or uh, co-authoring the Coddling of the American Mind, the sort of update of Alan Bloom's uh, classic crank screed on uh, on the. Uh, uh, sort of degeneracy of modern education. And of course, good old Steven Pinker, uh, who just a quick shout out to a, uh, an episode that's coming up. We have an interview with our good friend and colleague, Nathan Penske, uh, reviewing Pinker's latest book on rationality and, uh, spoiler alert. It's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> it's, very uh, bad. it's very, very silly. The episode, very good. The episode, however, is very good. And we would love for you to listen to it. We are a dedicated crew that grows by the day. Our political or our backgrounds and experiences are diverse. Our political views differ. What unites us is a common dismay at the state of modern academia and a recognition that we can no longer wait for the cavalry. And so we must be the cavalry. It will seem re- it will surely <clears throat> seem retro, perhaps even countercultural. Hmm. In an era of massive open online courses and distance learning, to build an actual school in an actual building with as few screens as possible. But there is wisdom in the things that have endured. <laughs> Are they going to like do all their business uh you know by hand? <laughs> We're going you know, back to we're and, going back and, to yeah. paper based filing systems, folks. Get the cabinets <laughs> ready. Get them back. Our yeah. Well, overhead that way they projectors. Could, yes. That makes it easier to destroy evidence. That's when a good they, point. Um, come under federal <laughs> investigation. Oh yeah, which certainly they. I mean, they don't have anything to worry about there. They should be fine. The university, as we know it today, is an institution that originated in 11th century Europe. The fact that there have been universities for nearly a thousand years, despite all the extraordinary changes in the nature of knowledge and communications technology in that time, tells us something important. Yeah, and this is where they're talking about being in a physical location rather than being in a uh, in an online university. We believe human beings think and learn better when they gather in dedicated locations where they are, to some extent, insulated from the quotidian struggle to make ends meet, and where there is no fundamental distinction between those who teach and those who learn beyond the extent of their knowledge and wisdom. 
weird having that critique of elitism in academia and then deciding that making ends meet is not something that belongs in academia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't get where they're getting the insulated from the quotidian struggle to make ends meet. I mean, there's you know, myriad research studies that are out there that talk about college students facing financial precarity, like, you know, undergraduates as well as graduate students. Not exactly sure what they're driving at here. Yeah, and I mean, there's also going to be like, are they are they going to have a janitorial staff? Are they going to have, like, any sort of maintenance of this building? Like, if so, that is people making ends meet to ensure your, your beautifully insulated intellectual salon, right? <laughs> oh, see, that's just woke ideology talking, Calvin. That's not a... Yeah, that's we shouldn't not, talk about any of that. <laughs> yeah, that's not a real... That's not a real pursuit of veritas. <laughs> We believe the purpose of education is not simply employment, but human flourishing, which includes meaningful employment. <laughs> Wait, what? I, that's just my that's just my favorite line of all time. There's like no oh. way to there's no way to read that line on, except for just feeling like a like almost tautological or contradictory, like a false. Right. I mean, right? Like the only way. Maybe if they use like italics on the includes, which includes employment, right, right? Or maybe they need to add a you know an a positive modifier, some kind of like which counterintuitively includes right. employment, right? 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 Give me something to set me up for the fact that it feels like some kind of riddle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think what they're trying to drive at here as they continue here, we are therefore reconceiving the relationship between a liberal education and the demands of our dynamic and fluid professional world. So they're kind of getting at this debate of academics as job training versus academics as this pursuit of human flourishing in kind of the middle there. And then, of course, the illiberal pursuit of grievances on the other end of the spectrum, I guess. I don't know. To me, it doesn't really make sense the way that they're making or like what they're responding to here is not totally clear to me. It's not really clear to me either. I assumed it was that you rack up all this college debt and get a degree in arts, and you can't pay off your debt instead of getting a job. But they're simultaneously arguing for why the arts should exist in this place where <laughs> they can sort of happen, un like they could flourish without any sort of everyday struggles or something. So it's, it's a weird contradiction. Yeah. Well, and the, yeah, they also seem to want to have it both ways between academia is bad now because it doesn't help you get a job. But also, it shouldn't just help you get a job. It needs to be about something higher than that. And the woke stuff is what's preventing you from getting a job. But is that even true? Like, <laughs> my sense is that, like, being woke really helps you get a job. Yes, it is. Uh, it is increasingly a way to advance in a career field. Again, yeah, I'm and, offering and, that and, as like a neutral assessment. Right. <laughs> like that it's is... a neutral thing. Like, it's just kind of a factor. And, and it, of course, it depends how we define wokeness. Right. And, you know, and what sort of social justice -y points of view we're, we're including within that. But it doesn't hurt to, like, come across when you're a job candidate as sensitive to a lot of different points of view and identities in the world like that is just generally a good rhetorical strategy for <laughs> trying to get a job. So none of this really adds up. Like they seem to want to say that wokeness is killing academia, academia's value for students, but at the same time, it's helping them get jobs and that's bad. Yeah. I I've always been kind of confused by that tack because it like, 
Yeah, when they never extend a critique of, I guess, like wokeness, or it doesn't feel like they do into anything other than the university. <laughs> like, right. there was nobody, there was nobody who was criticizing, you know, that that really cringeworthy advertisement uh, for CIA recruitment uh, that was appropriate that came out a while back that was appropriating a lot of the language of, you know, quote unquote woke culture. I'm a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box-checking exercise. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. I am proud of me, full stop. My parents left everything they knew and loved to expose me to opportunities they never had. Because of them, I stand here today a proud first-generation Latina and officer at CIA. Whatever the advertisement was saying, there was no backlash from this particular ilk on, you know, oh, the CIA is woke now. Like it's, <laughs> that's a bad thing, right? It seems like they're, they're only going for soft targets here, which uh, for them are university professors, we elite. If you guys have ever heard the phrase before, uh, those who can do, those who can't teach, we're going to get a little, uh, a little detourn on that in the next paragraph here. Our rigorous curriculum will be the first designed in partnership, not only with great teachers, but also society's great doers. <laughs> So we're, in addition to those those can't-do teachers, we're going to bring in some doers to really show them what's up. Alex, there's another alcohol reference, man. Doers. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I think they were just drunk when they wrote this. Honestly, it would not. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Barry Weiss, doers. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> great, great callback. <laughs> Society's great doers, founders of daring ventures, dissidents who have stood up to authoritarianism, pioneers in tech, and the leading lights in engineering and the natural sciences. Our students will be exposed to the deepest wisdom of civilization and learn to encounter works not as dead traditions, but as fierce contests of timeless significance that help human beings distinguish between what is true and false, good and bad, beautiful and ugly. Students will come to... <laughs> Sorry, it's just... Like, I don't know. It's fascinating. It's They are going to help human beings do better with their dualistic thinking, which is right. tra traditionally a great uh, hallmark of critical thought. Yeah, we've had a lot of trouble figuring out what's beautiful and what's ugly. And finally, <laughs> finally, we're going to get a hot or not for the intellectual set. I thought I knew and then I went to undergrad and it just, I can't tell the difference anymore. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. I, we need to have our sight restored here. Wait, I also want to point out the leading lights of engineering and the natural sciences. I don't know about that, guys. Like, I, I think you need like a budget for fundamental research in order to attract high quality researchers in those fields. Like the leading lights, that's a hell of a claim. Yeah, I don't see a lot of scientists and engineers like fleeing Harvard or Carnegie Mellon because it's too woke because these right. places have like st lefty student groups like the engineers and scientists don't care they have budgets to do the work they want to do and they're at like a real university 
you're not going to be able to do like high quality lab work in a, a co-working space in Austin. <laughs> like it's just not going to happen. No, you're absolutely right. To conclude uh, the article here, there's just a few more paragraphs. Students will come to see such open inquiry as a lifetime activity that demands of them a brave, sometimes discomfiting, search for enduring truths. This core purpose, the intrepid pursuit of truth, has been at the heart of education since Plato founded his academy in 387 BC. Reviving it would produce a resilient, or quote-unquote anti-fragile, cohort with exceptional capacity to think fearlessly, nimbly, and inventively. Such graduates will be the future leaders best prepared to address humanity's challenges. An education rooted in the pursuit of truth is the antidote to the kind of ignorance and incivility that is everywhere around us. As Frederick Douglass proclaimed, <laughs> real, real bold choice appropriating the words of Frederick Douglass uh, here, education, ellipsis, means emancipation. It means light and liberty. It means the uplifting of the soul of man into the glorious light of truth, the light only by which men can be free, end quote. We expect to face significant resistance to this project, much like Frederick Douglass. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. Uh, we expect to face significant <laughs> resistance to this project. There are networks of donors, foundations, and activists that uphold and promote the status quo. I wonder oh, what their ideologies are. <laughs> What are we talking about there? There are parents who expect the status quo. There are students who demand it, along with even greater restrictions on academic freedom. Students are demand. We everywhere we hear students demanding restrictions on academic freedom. It's yeah, we, we and, love and, to and see demanding it. everywhere you hear students demanding the status quo. Yes, that's right. <laughs> More status quo. The way Keep things, things the are. Same. Yes. <laughs> And there are administrators and professors who will feel threatened by any disruption to the system. I mean, clearly we are we are being very triggered by all of this, which is why we're dedicating a whole episode to uh, very seriously considering the threat posed by this quote unquote university. We welcome their opprobrium and will regard it as vindication. To the rest, to those of you who share our sense that something fundamental is broken, we ask that you join us in our effort to renew higher education. We welcome all who share our mission to pursue a truly liberating education and hope that other founders follow our example. It is time to restore the meaning to those old school mottos. Light, truth, the wind of freedom. You will find all three at our new university in Austin. And that's the end of that Substack post. Thrilling. I don't know. Why would you set yourself up with this kind of task. I mean, that's where it, it, it feels like just gassing up potential investors. They're just trying to get the investment money and then like launder it. And, and this website like won't exist. It'll be wiped from the internet in like two weeks because like they want to reform the entire university system with this one like weird university. That's like a laughing stock that's made up of like people from Jeffrey Epstein Island. Like what is the, you're not going to do that with one small project that doesn't even seem to be a real university. I'm excited for our next article to get into more of the specifics of like what they plan to offer or claim to plan to offer because it's all so theoretical. But it's just bizarre to me to like claim to be like reforming an entire massive sector of the economy 
with a website. And when they ultimately fail, they're going to blame it on something that's not their own incompetence. Right. Yeah, they're, 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 they're going to say that people should have let them reform academia, and, and they, but they didn't because people canceled them. And, and I mean, people have noted this, which I think is good, that they're they're setting themselves up with an escape hatch, right? Like they're right. like Mike is saying, like they're setting it up like we know that people are going to be pissed at us. And that's a sign that we're right, which, you know, classic sort of like conspiracy mindset. Right. But also, yeah, it's giving them sort of the perfect out for and I won't even say if when this does fail, when it does eventually go under, I will put my my professional credentials on that one. Then they can point to, you know, well, we said people were going to come after us. And sure enough, they canceled us. And, you know, because of all the vitriol we received, our ideas were just too dangerous for the public. And it's like, well, that sure is convenient, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no. And it, and, it, and it reminds me of that causal claim that they made about like, Academia being woke is why our politics are screwed up. Yes. Where it's like very fallacious causal reasoning. They're going to do the same thing with their university failing, with this project failing. When it's like, you know, shitty ideas and like bad products and bad arguments fail all the time. Mm -hmm. Like the Eternals <laughs> was going to be this amazing movie. <laughs> You know, honestly, very talented director, Chloe Zhao. Sure. I, I liked Nomadland. You know, they put a ridiculous amount of money into it. Like, people were excited. The marketing was intense. And it's like a flop, especially for a Marvel movie. Was it wokeness? Like, it's a super... It's actually a very woke movie. Mm -hmm. Was it wokeness? Was it cancel culture that caused that to fail? Like, is, this is just like a theory that explains every failure now. Yeah. If you fail, you're canceled. Yeah. When it's like, no, people are just canceling their subscriptions because yes. they're bored. Yes. I think that really gets at the heart of it, right, is that cancellation has really become the way to say, I failed and I don't want to take responsibility for the fact that people just are not compelled by my ideas. Therefore, I can claim this like victim status, which is so ironically what so they're, ironic. which is what their, their whole thing is all about. Like these people complain more. They, they complain about their own personal grievances with like very niche things in, in the U S Academy of all places, like things where people are, you know, like unless, unless academic research somehow otherwise makes its way into the public, like most normal people are not concerned about this. Like this is only for the extreme online, you know, vanguard of like op-ed writers who want to make, you know, the university, this sort of like, like you were saying, Calvin, like a synecdoche for all of American political culture. If the college campuses, you know, if we perceive them to be illiberal, that means the entire society is going to hell in a handbasket. Like, it's baffling to me. There is nobody who complains more about petty grievances than these people. That's why mm -hmm. I want to look at the next article, because I wonder, they can't be planning on doing anything, isn't it? This is all just <laughs> has to function as some big propaganda machine for this kind of intellectual dark web of folks who dream of, I don't know, writing on Quillette and <laughs> maybe starting a university in Budapest where they can ban gender studies. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
Jeez. <laughs> you know, don't don't speak it into being, Mike. It's uh, it's it's very possible. It's already in their minds, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure yeah. it is too. So as we've been alluding to, we have another article which I'm only going to quote in brief from because it honestly it covers a lot of the same, even the same statistics. There's a lot of copies of those reports from the National Institute for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. That one gets cited a lot uh, in here. Nispy. Yeah. Yep. But <laughs> Nispy. That, that institute we all know and love. But so this article was published in Bloomberg. The title is I'm helping start a new college because higher ed is broken by Niall Ferguson. Uh, first and foremost, do you guys know anything about Niall Ferguson? Not really. The name sounds familiar, but I just I my my association is probably like British and reactionary. Is that wrong? Yeah, Mike, did you do you have any associations with this person? Familiar name in negative contexts, I think. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of negative contexts. He is known for his positive views concerning the British Empire. That's right. Yeah, I was right. <laughs> oh, I was wondering why. <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah, so he was uh, definitely a, uh, let's see, he once ironically called himself, quote, a fully paid up member of the neo-imperialist gang following the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So cool guy, real good politics in all yeah, sorts a lot of, of Yeah, a lot of people are involved with this thing who got, basically got rich propagandizing for the Iraq war and have faced no professional consequences as a result. Like, <laughs> and they're complaining about cancellation. Yeah. Like if there was any real cancellatory justice in this country, these people would be permanently canceled. Yeah. But they're flourishing. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that, that really gets at the other, and we'll, we can go over this a little bit more when we finish the, the articles, but the sort of deafening silence of the canceled, right? The, <laughs> the fact that you are just constantly hearing from these people, they constantly get news spots to talk about how canceled they are is just, you know, people, people go on full book tours to talk about how cancel culture is ruining the academy, speaking at colleges and universities about it. It's just, it's, it defies, it defies parody. So let's go ahead and dive into that Niall Ferguson op-ed. I'm helping to start a new college because higher ed is broken. So I'm just going to read a little bit of the intro here because I think it's worth reading. If you enjoyed Netflix's The Chair, a lighthearted depiction of a crisis-prone English department at an imaginary Ivy League college, incidentally, Chatham University in Pittsburgh uh, is where it was filmed, you clearly are not in higher education. Something is rotten in the state of academia, and it's no laughing matter. Incidentally, did either of you guys see The Chair? I didn't watch I did The not. Chair. I watched two episodes and got bored. So that's that's my... My official take. Well, it sounds like you and Niall are kind of have a similar take. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to really agree with this. Yep. <laughs> grade inflation. Spir I love that term, grade inflation. Grade inflation, spiraling costs, corruption and racial discrimination in admissions, junk content in parentheses, quote unquote, grievance studies published in risable journals. Above all, the erosion of academic freedom and the ascendancy of an illiberal, quote-unquote, successor ideology, known to its critics as wokeism, which manifests itself as career-ending cancellations and speaker disinvitations, but less visibly generates a pervasive climate of anxiety and self-censorship. 
Some say that universities are so rotten that the institution itself should simply be abandoned and replaced with an online alternative, a metaversity perhaps, to go with the metaverse. So really up. staying on top of... <laughs> yeah. I'm holding mine Wait, what back. What you saying, I said I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding mine back for sure. I mean, this is a dark vision. I you You, you would think that like all of our classes would be completely under enrolled and like our students would be not doing any work and like no one would be attending universities. And mm -hmm. my understanding is that that's not the situation at all in higher ed right now. Like higher ed is pretty healthy. I also yeah. feel like with all of this wanting for face-to-face -face real world classes, it doesn't really seem like now Ferguson has taught in a pandemic face-to-face -face class. Uh, or rather taught in a face-to-face -face class during an ongoing pandemic because it's been challenging, just as challenging as hybrid teaching. And I think that yeah. speaks a lot to these views on COVID that, that certain folks might have. Oh yeah, that's a that's a whole other that's a whole other issue in and of itself. <laughs> it is, but there's a, but there's a good amount of ideological contiguity between these people and people who oppose vaccine mandates mm -hmm. and mask mandates and and anything like that. I mean, I, I think Barry Weiss herself has tweeted recently about pulling out these random incidents of like a professor reporting a student for not wearing a mask, you know, in a lecture. You know, and Barry Weiss basically putting that professor on blast for like trying to enforce a mask policy. So these people are very much like living in a privilege of not having to be effectively frontline workers, which a lot of instructors are who are, you know, many instructors are teaching four or five sections in person in a pandemic in states like Texas and here in Utah where like vaccination rate is low and cases are super high. So it's it's not easy work. No, it's not. And uh, quite ironically, you know, if Barry Weiss is putting those people on blast, sounds like an attempted cancellation. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That might Maybe that's just me, but that smacks of a little bit of hypocrisy. But uh, sometimes you have to cancel people who are canceling other people, Alex, ah, to, to, right. to protect all of our rights. The, the law of canceled canceling cancellations. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. Carl Popper right about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right. <laughs> Oh, man. So I'm skipping down a little further in the article where we have just another bi-lexical bigrams as uh, as kind of like uh, in, in their own sentences. Trigger warnings, safe spaces, preferred pronouns, checked privileges, microaggressions, anti-racism. All these terms are routinely deployed on campuses throughout the English-speaking world as part of a sustained campaign to impose ideological conformity in the name of diversity. As a result, it often feels as if there is less free speech and free thought in the American university today than in almost any other institution in the U.S. <laughs> Candy bars, soda, soda pops, hamburgers... <laughs> Uh, hot dogs, TikToks, um, tick TikToks, tweet fleets. <laughs> just I'm just trying to think of other like two word <laughs> phrases to do. Hot chocolates. Yes. I don't know why I'm, I'm just thinking of treats. I mean, but, uh, it, it clearly that's that's where our heads are right now. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it's a much better yeah. place to be than just like 
living in this world where the the greatest threats to free speech and free thought are things like trigger warnings, safe spaces, preferred pronouns, checked privileges, microaggression, like. I just, I, I am so baffled. Well, a lot of those aren't even things. Like no. a lot, a lot, I mean, it's, it's, it's so like preferred pronouns. That's something that individuals list or, or ask people to respect. But then trigger warnings, that's something that I guess instructors and, and others with authority offer to, to kind of give some information about content before they present it. And microaggressions, that's something that we attribute to other people, behavior that, that, that might be deemed offensive. But like none of these are operating as laws or as kind of regimes that we live under. They're just terms that people employ to describe like their preferences for communication. Yeah. Right? No, exactly. No, I mean, they're communication norms, right? Like they are the development of new ways of, you know, doing discourse. So to get mad at that is, I mean, these are people who are speech policing, right? Like this is, right. this is literally a form of policing other people's speech that is developing more or less organically out of social practices that are becoming more normalized. Like that's, I don't know. It's like it's like getting mad at the wind, right? Like there's not really anything right. you can do about it. It's just like it's very much like an old man yells at cloud kind of argument. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. Yeah, and if you if you want to use if you want to not use trigger warnings as a professor and re-traumatize your students and create an unproductive space for learning, you're free to do that with academic Absolutely. freedom. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, you're free to ignore a lot of these things with that. And people will respond in ways that will hold you accountable. Yep. And in a lot of instances, you won't be held accountable. I mean, these things are yeah. Yeah, these things are pretty fragile norms. Like they're not they're not well established at all. You know, depending on the university, you might have an office of diversity or a Title IX office that's thinking about some of these things, doing trainings on some of these things. But enforcement is incredibly lax yeah. to the extent that there even is enforcement. And yeah, like you can totally get away with running your class however you want. The question is like, how will your students experience that? And will you get good evaluations? I mean, for some precarious faculty, that can be an issue. And, you know, we could look at situations of precarious faculty being canceled by like super powerful administrators, and that becomes a labor issue, yes. right? But it's different when in all likelihood who Niall Ferguson is imagining is like a highly, highly tenured, illustrious professor who is being canceled by like a 19 year old with blue hair for not using their preferred pronouns. And that's not happening, like period. No. Like the like someone might object, but that professor is going to be fine and they'll probably be able to write a book about it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Now, this next paragraph, I just have to say, I really wanted to isolate this one because this is where this is where Niall Ferguson goes full galaxy brain. And this is, uh, you know, if you if you really want a good history lesson, it's clear that you should be learning from uh, Niall Ferguson. So after he issues all these warnings about trigger warnings, safe spaces, preferred pronouns, <clears throat> 
To the historian's eyes, there is something unpleasantly familiar about the patterns of behavior that have, in a matter of a few years, become normal on many campuses. The chanting of slogans, the brandishing of placards, the letters informing on colleagues and classmates, the denunciations of professors to the authorities, the lack of due process, the cancellations, the rehabilitations following abject confessions, the officiousness of unaccountable bureaucrats. Any student of the totalitarian regimes of the mid-20th century recognizes all this with astonishment. It turns out that it could happen in a free society, too, if institutions and individuals who claim to be liberal choose to behave in an entirely illiberal fashion. Hold up. It turns out, it turns out that this can happen? Like, is he, I don't, I mean, this guy is Scottish, right? Yes. Yes, he is. Did, so here's a historical question, and we can delete this because it's going to sound really ignorant, but did... McCarthyism happened to the same extent. That's in the what UK I was wondering. That's what, that was my first question. Uh, yeah, yep. because this he's describing McCarthyism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it happened in every every college. Yes, every it, it happened in Hollywood. Like, you know, they were they were locking up and 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 blacklisting. You know, famous beloved Hollywood screenwriters and actors. Like, this has happened. What he's describing has happened in many eras overwhelmingly to the left and so yeah just bizarre level of historical ignorance there maybe that's where i'm like is this a a sort of national blind spot that he has that he's not like aware of that mccarthyism like swept up academics yeah um, I, I mean so i'm not i'm not sure to the extent the extent to which there was a red scare in great britain i mean to the extent that they were a capitalist power during a time in the mid 20th century where there was an ideological crisis that, you know, in some regards, you might say necessitated a response to that, you know, a crackdown from actual political elite in the U.S. on free speech in the U.S. Academy. No, I mean, I think that Ferguson is basically making a, I mean, I think he's making a, a comparison to uh, A, the Nazis, and uh, B, the Soviet Union. Um, right. So he's he's talking about foreign oppressive yes, regimes. Yes, precisely. And that finally... Finally, what you know we're seeing in the West, like some of that oppression is happening here too, mm -hmm. and it's like we had an entire McCarthy era. We had Japanese internment camps. I mean, we don't need to list like all of the the atrocities that have been committed on U.S. soil against people's like basic speech and 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 association and assembly rights. But just just take like the '40s through the '60s flip a coin and the coin will land on someone locked up for their beliefs. Yeah. Right. Yep. Again, it, uh, there's just an astounding amount of historical myopia that's sort of permeates all of this that, yeah, it's really astounding. And even like, even not even just thinking about the things that happened to leftist professors in the past with McCarthyism and whatnot, he's also talking about students, I think, right? The chanting of slogans, things right. like that. Yep. And it's like, there was, the whole counterculture. I mean, Kent State, the Kent State right. shooting was in like 1970. Yeah, seriously. There was a massive student movement. And yeah, like even if we take like his imagery totally for granted, letter campaigns, placards, signs, like, and, and if, you know, from our perspective as dirty commies, like that, <laughs> that's good. We, 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 we could say like, 
you know, leftist students have been around for decades. This is not new. Yeah. Like SDS and the women's movement and the civil rights movement. Like, yep. come on. You could even say yeah. that that kind of movement on college campuses promotes intellectual flourishing and academic yes. freedom and, and things like that. Interesting. And not a lot. Interesting. You could say that, but they, but they won't. So, <laughs> so this is where, this is where there starts to get some real heat in this article right here. Uh, dropping down to a section where Niall Ferguson just in, just absolutely gruesome detail. I don't know how they let him publish an op-ed this long in Bloomberg, but you know, again, it's, I think he's a regular, he's like a regular contributor there. Like mm -hmm. he's kind of like Glenn Greenwald at the guardian. Like he has mm -hmm. like a, a devoted column. Gotcha. You know? Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, again, very canceled individual definitely has a lot of forbidden knowledge that is being suppressed, uh, published in, uh, Bloomberg, one of the major media outlets in the U S yeah, woke uh, Wall Street is totally <laughs> shutting him down. That's right. So he's outlining in sort of gruesome detail all of the problems with the university and why it's allowed to perpetuate itself. And he concludes thus. Finally, there is the problem of the donors, most but not all alumni and trustees, many of whom have been astonishingly oblivious to of the problems described above. In 2019, donors gave nearly $50 billion to colleges. Eight donors gave $100 million or more. People <clears throat> generally do not make that kind of money without being hard-nosed in their business dealings. Yet, the capitalist class appears to be strangely unaware of the anti-capitalist uses to which its money is often put. A phenomenon I find deeply <clears throat> puzzling is the lack of due diligence associated with much academic philanthropy, despite numerous cases when the intentions of benefactors have been deliberately subverted. What do you what do you what? guys what do you guys think about this? So he's basically saying, like, I have no idea why all of these rich donors and trustees continue donating to universities despite the fact that they, you know, churn out all of these woke leftist students. It's right there. Like the answer is right there, staring him in the face. Like maybe these institutions are not anti-capitalist. Yeah, maybe like, so. Maybe maybe you're freaking out about something that's not real. Like you have that you have created to write more op-eds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's almost like they actually are doing their due diligence. They do realize that universities are serving their interests, that they are laundering their money, their influence. Basically, I mean, there's a real good critique of a university that's buried somewhere in here in the way that universities act as like hedge funds, basically, right? And th right. there are a lot of universities that do operate that way. Our alma mater is definitely not excluded from that. Right. But I mean, to act that blatantly naive about oh well i don't i don't get it how do they not realize what's going on right under their noses and it's like that's because you're not talking about a real problem <laughs> oh my god yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, he writes later on in here, in short, the beneficiaries of today's gilded age seem altogether more tolerant of academic degeneration than their 19th century predecessors. For whatever reason, many prefer to give their money to established universities, no matter how antithetical those institutions' values have become to their own. This makes no sense, even if the principal motivation is to buy Ivy League spots for their offspring. Why would you pay to have your children indoctrinated with ideas you despise? I, I it's it's so baffling, and I, like, and and this this also this also comes back to my question about the last article. Like, 
So this is all this is all build up. I mean, this is all just problem formation, yes. problem construction, right? Yes. And at a certain point, we're going to get to the turn, mm -hmm. which is ah ha ha, our solution. Yes. This, you know, weird DIY co-working space, <laughs> un, heavy air quotes university that is just made up of a bunch of Epstein people doing powerpoints you know for 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 people and 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 that's going to solve this problem like is that going to convince the rich donors to stop giving to Harvard and Carnegie Mellon and Cornell like how what is this supposed to do it doesn't solve the problem it lines Barry Weiss's pockets though that is that is that true is a very, that is true. and that's very, important very astute I support observation. that yeah yeah honestly i mean we we should 100%. we need to you know we need to protect uh, the the bold truth tellers who are saying very unpopular things not making any money at all as a result and of it. brewing very unpopular beers <laughs> Barry Weiss line in kugels discontinue Barry Weiss please yeah. uh, cancel can't, Barry cancel, Weiss. cancel Barry Weiss yeah <laughs> So, and Calvin, you predicted it perfectly. Very next paragraph. So what should the university of the future look like? The university of the future. <laughs> Clearly, there is no point in simply copying and pasting Harvard, Yale, or Princeton and expecting a different outcome. Even if such an approach were affordable, it would be the wrong one. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> like at all. Sorry to interrupt, I but no, I don't know. <laughs> you mean copy pasting, yeah. copying and pasting part? Harvard. Yeah. It, like, would that be afford? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get some uh, let's get some gothic architects in here and build us a build us a spire or two, right? <laughs> yeah, we're gonna three D print some spires. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love I love it. <laughs> It's so it keeps getting better. <clears throat> to begin with, a new institution can't compete with the established brands when it comes to undergraduate programs. Young Americans and their counterparts elsewhere go to college as much for the high prestige credentials and the peer networks as for the education. That's why a new university can't start by offering bachelor's degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> cool. We're off to a great start. So no, Good. no undergraduate degrees. Yep. that fit in with the yep. point about employment? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. Well, we will get there. The University of Austin will therefore begin modestly, as as all of their their blustering rhetoric has been so They're far. Very modest, very modest yeah. about their goals. Oh, you're so modest. <laughs> Wow. The aspirations of truth uh, and, you know, taking down the establishment university, you know, we're just going to got some modest goals here with a summer school offering, quote unquote, forbidden courses, the kind of content and instruction no longer available at most established campuses, addressing the kind of provocative questions that often lead to cancellation or self-censorship. And we do not list what those forbidden courses are. Going they don't? To. No, they don't. Uh, no, they don't. Of course, because they're afraid of being canceled. That's right. If they listed them, they wouldn't actually be able to enroll them because <laughs> they'd get canceled before they could get enrollment. That's right. And therefore, I don't know, they're going to have to create some kind of like limited hangout, like maybe someone from the intelligence community. A lot of these people do have <laughs> connections there could develop some kind of encrypted classroom tech yes. that would enable them to discuss cancelable offenses mm -hmm. in the actual dark web. Yes. So they'll 
have the intellectual dark web on the actual dark web <laughs> and it'll be they won't get canceled That's because right. they'll kind of be talking to each other yeah i'm imagining now we need we need to put the university on the blockchain folks we need to we need yeah. to fully fully pseudonymize the the people so that we can't get our identities canceled yeah we need nct's <laughs> non-cancelable <laughs> token <laughs> I'm 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 waiting for the all the banner ads on the University of Austin website to just be Bitcoin scams and things like that. Oh, different crypto. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you, yeah. You can't you can't like click to read the the course descriptions because you're accidentally like clicking an ad, like a hidden ad. You're just trying to click the play button on the on the player, and you're just damn it. <laughs> That's that's what happens when University of Austin inevitably gets gutted and sold to a private equity firm. So yeah, and it becomes like one, two, three movies slash University <laughs> of Austin. That's right. <laughs> the Forbidden Courses is literally just pirated content for people who are too lazy to download a torrent tracker. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god! All right, so. <laughs> In addition uh, to their Forbidden Courses summer program, the next step will be a one-year master's program in entrepreneurship and leadership. The primary purpose of conventional business programs is to credential large cohorts of passive learners with a lowest common denominator curriculum. I mean... So first they were dunking on the academic humanities and social sciences. Now they're just going after business schools as well. I mean, you know... Fair enough, but also yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, not gonna, know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Heartbreaking. The worst person you know just made <laughs> made a great point. Yeah. yeah. The University of Austin's program will aim to teach students classical principles of the market economy and then embed them in a network of successful technologists, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and public policy reformers. It will offer an introduction to the world of American technology, similar to the introduction to the Chinese economy offered by the highly successful Schwarzman Scholars Program, combining both academic pedagogy and practical experience. Later, there will be parallel programs in politics and applied history and in education and public service. So there's our, at least our graduate degree program. I don't, a one-year master's program in entrepreneurship and leadership is just Wait, yeah what was that about the economy and public policy Wait, what did they say oh yeah so the university of austin's program will aim to teach students classical principles of the market economy classical principles of the market economy and then what was the thing about policy uh, and then embed them in a network of successful technologists entrepreneurs venture capitalists and public policy reformers so it sounds like basically yeah you'll learn you know, standard free market pablum and then be connected to people who are trying to privatize even more of the government to, to keep doing that, which is great. You know, that's, that's definitely not something that economics and business schools in classic universities are still doing. They're not, they're not interested in that anymore. They're all totally Marxist. (laughs) No, that's right. By all means. Only after these initial programs have been set up will we start offering a four-year liberal arts degree. The first two years of study will consist of an intensive liberal arts curriculum, including the study of philosophy, literature, history, politics, 
economics, mathematics, the sciences, and the fine arts. There will be an Oxbridge-style instruction. <laughs> so again, we're not copying and pasting any universities, but there will be an Oxbridge-style instruction with small tutorials and college-wide lectures, providing an in-depth and personalized learning experience with interdisciplinary breadth. This it's just Gen Ed. I know. It's not, <laughs> this is not sounding any different from any other, like, bog-standard university pablum at this point. It's just going to be a lot worse because they don't have actual, you know, I mean, they have a handful of academics, but they're, like, canceled academics. And it seems like they're intentionally not building, like, a real university with staff and departments, right? So, like, how are they going to make this Gen Ed curriculum work? I think because, I mean... Just small tutorials and college-wide lectures, very hands-off, no seminars, no <laughs> assignments throughout the semester, right? Just Sounds just, great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. And, you know, again, we can maybe talk about this more at the end here, but, like, it's starting to feel like one of those guys who, like, gets stoned in their dorm room, like, during college and is like, yo, what if we, what if we could invent a school, man, that, like, didn't have any teachers? Like, you know, we didn't have all these rules or whatever. And then the minute these people step into a room with, like, an accreditor uh, and, like, have to put together a curriculum committee to, like, actually get their shit together enough to actually have some sort of recognized academic merit – they're going to come up against the same issues that any other university is going to, and they're going to have to fold to the same pressures, right? Like, and they're going to use they're going to use existing universities as models, yes, because they have to start somewhere, exactly. and they don't actually have ideas. These people, so no. it's like, okay, you just reinvented what you railed against for. 20 paragraphs. I think before. Justin Long and Accepted probably will be more, yes! more successful than this endeavor. So after every college turned him down. You want to have a happy and successful life? You go to college. His only option was to make one up. South Harmon Institute of Technology. This is the act of a desperate, wildly unrealistic person. Your son is going to college. All our lives we've been told what to learn. At South Harmon, the students are the teachers. There are no tests, required reading, or any of that nonsense. Whatever the students say they want to learn. This summer, you want me to be the dean of your college? Come on, what do you say? We throw a lot of fancy words in front of these kids in the belief that they're going to have a better life. For anyone who thinks higher education has hit an all-time low, Universal Pictures presents a whole new school of thought. You don't need fancy, highbrow traditions or money to really learn. You just need people with a desire to better themselves. And we got that at South Harmony. That was exactly what I was thinking of, Mike. This is literally accepted university right here. Except like way more, way more, you know, like silly, right? So like this is, it's way less positive than, uh, than accepted. I can't get my degree in uh, shredding a half pipe at University of Austin. Um, after, after two years, <laughs> indeed, after two years of a comprehensive and rigorous liberal arts education, undergraduates will join one of four academic centers as junior fellows, pursuing disciplinary coursework, conducting hands-on research, and gaining experience as interns. The initial centers will include one for entrepreneurship and leadership, one for politics and applied history, one for education and public service, and one for technology, engineering, and mathematics. To those who argue that we could more easily do all this with some kind of internet platform, I would only say that online learning is no substitute for learning on a campus for reasons rooted in evolutionary psychology. <laughs> oh, great. There it is. Cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's the Andrew Sullivan influence coming out. Yep, that's right. Get the calipers out, folks. We're talking about yeah. Evo Psych. Come on. Oh, man. They couldn't get through an entire one of these articles without bringing up reasons rooted in evolutionary psychology. We simply learn much better in relatively small groups in real time and space as opposed to fake time and fake space. Not least because a good deal of what students learn in a well-functioning university comes from their informal discussions in the absence of professors. This explains the persistence of the university over a millennium, despite successive revolutions in information technology. Get literally a repeat from the ad copy that we read on the Barry Weiss substack. So humans learn the best in small groups, which is why they're going to offer college-wide lectures for all agenda. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It all is, is so consistent and logical. It really Hard is. To um, I mean... <laughs> I mean, how also I just like have to raise the timeline of all of this is non-existent. We don't really know when any of this is going to happen. Nope. Probably none of it is going to happen. Right. But since they're really hitting this point about like no online, no online, we, we will not have online. Yes. It implies that they are imagining this happening quickly <laughs> enough that like online would be an option. In which case, I want to say that's going to be hard to like maintain this kind of informal conversational learning when you just have like super spreader events in all of your classes, which sounds like what they want because they're like completely ruling out online. They're like brick and mortar, no screens. We're going to get in the room and really debate stuff and spit at each other. And um, <laughs> that's going to be bad in a state like Texas with low vaccination. Just to finish out the article here, my fellow founders and I have no illusions about the difficulty of the task ahead. We fully expect condemnation from the educational establishment and its media apologists. We shall regard all attacks as vindication. The flack will be a sign that we are above the target. In our minds, there is no more urgent task for a society than to ensure the health of its system of higher education. The American system today is broken in ways that pose a profound threat to the future strength and stability of the U.S. It is time to start fixing it. But the opportunity to do so in the classic American way, by creating something new, actually building rather than building back, is an inspiring and exciting one. Just have to. Oh, nice. I don't. Is that a dig on Joe Biden? Yeah, really? that's anti-Biden. Yeah, which you know. Why throw that in there? Like, I mean, is is it telegraphing that this is like strictly for Republicans? Like, don't apply to this university unless you're a Republican. Like, I don't, I don't get. It seems like a bad marketing strategy yeah. to to alienate Biden fans because there may be a lot of Biden fans who buy into this anti-cancel culture pablum. Yeah, you know, no, sadly, no, it's true. It kind of further reinforces the question. Who is this for, right? <laughs> like, who in the world could this possibly be for? And the answer, I think, is nobody, right? Like, I think right. that's, that's a pretty clear answer here. Finishing out, to quote Haidt and Lukianoff, the two uh, authors of The Coddling of the American Mind, quote, a school that makes freedom of inquiry an essential part of its identity, selects students who show special promise as seekers of truth, orients and prepares those students for productive disagreement, would be inspiring to join, a joy to attend, and a blessing to society, end quote. 
That is not the kind of institution satirized in the chair. It is precisely the kind of institution we need today. I forgot that's where we started. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about the chair uh, reference as well. Uh, yeah, yeah and, like, and and we didn't even read the whole thing. Uh, there was uh, this is a twenty four minute read. Just FYI, this God. was uh, I had to size the text down a lot just to get it onto a ten page PDF. Yeah, I'm sorry, twenty two to twenty eight minutes uh, is how long Firefox is estimating that it will take you to read this. Yeah, so if you forgot about that reference to the chair all the way back up in the introduction, you can't be blamed because. Uh, doesn't really get referenced a lot. <laughs> Just, again, there's a reason that they're not offering a rhetoric and writing degree as part of their liberal arts curriculum, because none of them are qualified to teach one. Nile, 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 Nile. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I mean, so, I mean, I guess we're probably going to get to kind of the broader themes across these, but I mean, the one thing that jumps out at me is this idea of higher ed being broken. Mm-hmm. That's a real. That's a really crucial, enthymematic assumption across all of these that we, and that readers agree that it's broken for the same reasons or the same aspects of it are broken, as you know, Nile and Panelos believe it is right. Yeah, and so I think that's a really important question: Is higher ed broken, and if so, in what ways? Is it broken? And what or who broke it? I think for these guys, it's broken because there's too much wokeness. There seems to be something about like grade inflation, that like the overall quality of the education that students are getting is declining. But I mean, the the, the two points about grade inflation and educational quality are not really backed up with any kind of data or evidence. And and the stuff about wokeness is entirely anecdotal and ideological and hard to actually like get your hands around. It just seems to be like every week there's another minor controversy that these people blow up to being the worst oppression of all time. And so I frankly just don't agree. I think higher ed is pretty healthy to the extent that higher ed is broken. It's because our society is broken. When we say that something is broken, I think of like, for example, the U S Congress, I think of like the U S political system feels a little broken to me because it's so hard for policies to actually change because we've had successive administrations where there's been very little change in policy. And it seems like even though there are a lot of policies that are really popular with publics, we can't get politicians to actually do those policies. That's a system that feels broken to me. But like higher ed is still churning out degrees that are pretty valuable, churning out graduates, like placing people into society who are, you know, to the extent that they're not getting jobs, it's it's a broader economic problem. It's not necessarily higher ed's fault. And so I just flat out reject the premise that, higher ed is broken in these ways that that they think it is. I mean, I would be inclined to agree with that. I think, you know, if we are to say that higher ed's broken, it's probably because it's not affordable and it's still really inaccessible. It's not a right. it's not a a democratic resource, right? Like to the extent that it should be. Obviously, there have been some good strides in that direction. I think that, you know, more people are able to access it probably now than a long time ago, but the affordability is one thing, but 
The only other way that I could see higher ed being broken is not because of any sort of like ideological commitments to wokeness, which is a fiction, right? <laughs> like this is a something that is basically developed as a way for these people to say, I disagree, but instead of actually articulating an argument that somebody might find compelling, I'm instead going to say that your opinion is a marker of civilizational decline, and therefore <laughs> you deserve to be censured, which is, again, just very weirdly illiberal <laughs> you gotta you gotta hand it to them they're they're doing a great job of modeling what illiberalism looks like in a very real sense and for all of the the griping about students trying to cancel professors as a student as a grad student at cmu i don't think cmu is committed to wokeness when they chose to you know appoint richard grinnell and then ignore faculty and students and staff when they criticized this appointment and then, you know, again, all the commitment to open and free debate and free speech and things like that, they sort of spun it in a way where they said that Richard Grinnell would give open talks and you could ask questions and things like that. And I think he gave maybe one or two. And when folks tried to ask questions, you had to like go through the, the Zoom chat and there were all of these barriers to actually having a debate with this man mm -hmm. who, in my opinion, holds some uh, pretty egregious ideological commitments, but I don't think that universities are, are broken in the way that they're saying. Point number two, how much of this is just propaganda for their own brand? It just in terms of like <laughs> right. in, in the alt-light sphere, right? There's the anti-postmodernism where yes. we have a culture war that we've manufactured in some way. And so where do we trace the root of that to sort of fight this cultural war ideologically? And we choose education as the battleground, which is where all now it's even seeped its way into K through 12 school boards and things like that. Yes. Uh, and so all, I mean, both of these articles just read like a screed against this specter of postmodernism, post-truth, things that are degrading society and our civilization's values and, we need to get back to Plato's Academy. Yeah, it's baffling on all counts. I mean, I think that the characterization of the university, as they are putting it, is obviously faulty, fallacious. The entire controversy itself, whether we're talking about anti-postmodernity or anti-critical race theory, right, which is a controversy more, more or less like, you know, manufactured by like a guy, uh, Christopher Rufo, with ties to uh, what was the institute again, Calvin? Manhattan Institute yeah. and 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 the Coke Coke Institute. I mean, massive, massive conservative billionaire money. Yeah, these people are articulating ideas that flatter power in a certain way, but not enough, as it turns out, to keep powerful people in their ranks. I just want to, I want to note one, uh, one, one little thing here, uh, to kind of, uh, conclude <laughs> a few other self cancellations, uh, have happened, uh, as of late, as of November 15th, 2021, we have here a UATX, uh, university of Austin statement about Robert Zimmer and Steven Pinker. The University of Austin is just one week old and has thus far succeeded in generating huge public interest, which is a public interest. Yeah, so, yeah, that's that's what it is. That's what your ratio yeah. is on Twitter. It's public interest. <laughs> but see how they're measuring success, though. They they want the the vitriol. Yeah, they yeah. want to be ratioed. Yeah. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> yep, it's true. 
Yet, as is often the case with fast-moving startups, okay, so we're a startup now, <laughs> as with fast-moving startups, there were some missteps. In particular, our website initially failed to make clear the distinction between the founding trustees and the advisory board. Although we moved swiftly to correct this mistake, it conflated advisors, who were aligned in general with the project but not necessarily in agreement with all its actions and statements, and those who had originated the project and bear responsibility for those things. This led to unnecessary complications for several members of the advisory board, including Robert Zimmer and Steven Pinker, for which we are deeply sorry. We fully understand their decision to step down as advisors. So they just can't stop winning, folks. They can't stop winning. This reads like a report on a police murder of a civilian, just with the amount of passive voice and like agency <laughs> no, abstraction. It's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> there were some missteps. Missteps were made. Uh, this led to unnecessary complications for several members. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, the nominalizations um, here are fantastic. Yeah. So what, I mean, I guess like they got in trouble with their bosses. And so <laughs> they they had to step down. I mean, that's what's great about this is like, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in this like meeting that Steven Pinker got dragged into by the year. I mean, he did have to go on Twitter and say specifically, by the way, I'm a member of the advisory board. I'm not actually affiliated with this institution on, you know, on their like board of trustees or anything like that, because I mean, I'm guessing that he probably was dragged into a room somewhere and they were like, hey, you're not like, you know, quitting Harvard. Right. And, you know, of course, he said, no, I'm not, because this is a real job, <laughs> not a not a fake job at a made up university. <laughs> Right. And then he tweeted, you know, and he tweeted out the link to this article yes. and said, by mutual and amicable agreement, <laughs> I'm stepping off the board of advisors of U of Austin, hashtag UATX, wishing them well. I'm concentrating on rationality, the book, the book, not the, the, not idea, the concept and not the concept. And think with Pinker, the BBC radio and podcast series. And won't be speaking on this for a while. And he he shut down replies. So it currently has 748 quote tweets, 44 retweets. Yeah, because if you support free and open debate, you shut down your Twitter replies. (laughs) That's right. shut down replies. Yeah. Um, Just just all signs that things are going great. (laughs) I love by mutual and amicable agreement. It's like by mutual and amicable agreement – my wife has thrown me out of the house. <laughs> um, I will not be. I will not be taking anymore. questions at this time. <laughs> yeah, I will not be commenting on this. I will further. take a couch at this time, though. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, famous Quillette oh. author and Epstein associate Stephen Pinker. He's famous for other In, stuff, I think, yes. too. But those are the two things. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's. You cool. can learn about it on our episode with Nathan Pensky, which uh, will be coming out soon. Indeed, indeed. I also have to say, I really appreciate uh, there was a Houston publication from Cron. They tweeted out an article. Those associated with the new institution, University of Austin, range from former New York Times columnist Barry Weiss to experimental psychologist and one-time Jeffrey Epstein associate S.A. Pinker. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad that this is finally, he's getting to the point where that is like how people know him now, which, you know what? That's, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that's cancellation. Yeah, that's right. I saw someone, um, someone um, tweeted that 
Steven Pinker spent more time on Epstein's plane than he did on the advisory board. Ooh, ooh, brutal. Which isn't false. Brutal. I mean, yeah, true. no, it's true. I mean, this is a, a very strange situation here. I mean, we, we've spent the better part of two hours engaging with these arguments, you know, in a kind of argument analysis way, in a kind of rhetorical criticism approach. But we could just as easily take a Marxist materialist approach to this entire conversation and talk about the money yep. and the strange financial opacity surrounding this entire endeavor yes. that it feels like one big grift or like private equity scam, <laughs> which is what I really think yes. it is, yeah. you know? And so that's a whole other layer to this that makes the arguments even funnier in my opinion, because it's like, <laughs> they're just kind of tap dancing for potential funders. Absolutely. Well, and it's, yeah. I mean, to the extent to which universities, you know, more broadly function as hedge funds, right? Yeah. This is the equivalent of a, they're trying to build a university that is essentially like either going to become a private equity firm or is going to get bought up by one and, you know, basically like, you know, <laughs> outsource all of its labor, whatever, whatever it ends up being, or just, you know, shuttered completely. Yeah, it feels like just as much of an opportunistic cash grab. And uh, I, I guess I at least hope that nobody is dubious enough to fall for it. If they do, it'll be like, the fire festival where instead of like that oh, sandwich man. picture yes. it'll just be they'll get to the university oh, and it'll just be a bunch of like printed out oh, substack oh. articles or something <laughs> yeah yeah no they're gonna have like one pen per yeah. person and it's gonna be like a bic with like a shitty uatx sticker on it yeah no this you're that's a, an amazing comparison yes. the fire this is the fire festival of universities and God bless it. Yeah. You know, indeed. we'll see how they do. Best of luck. I, I love higher ed. I love the discourse. You gotta. You gotta. It's the love of the game, baby. That's why we do what we do uh, for <laughs> the discourse. Oh, man. Well, this has been an absolute blast hanging out with you two and uh, and critiquing just a, a really atrocious idea. I can't say that there is any better way that I that I would want to or could spend my evening. But as all good things, it must come to an end. So... We thank all of you for tuning in, listening to our rejoinder here on the University of Fire Festival. I, we hope that uh, that you don't fall for rhetoric like this, uh, that you, you know, if you are a college student, uh, that you are going to a, uh, you know, a fully accredited university like Trump University or some other more prestigious location. And, uh, you know. Just, just stay rational, folks. That's, I guess, uh, what else? What, and we what, will, we will, we will be introducing Reverb University <laughs> RVU here pretty soon. Right. Go Verbies. Go Verbies. Let's go Verbies. Go Verbies. Um, yes, indeed. And we'll see you there. Indeed. All right. Signing off. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Bye. I'm not going to say bye. Our show today was produced by Calvin Pollock, Alex Helberg, and Mike Loudenbach, with editing work by Alex and Mike. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, 
please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. 